Boop, boop, beep. No, it's not R2-D2, it's the Nerd Byword Podcast, talking about some of the games of yesteryear. Which video games made Chris and Dave gamers? Stick around to find out. Plus, we've got some nerdy news and new nerd commendations coming your way. Let's do this thing. Welcome back, nerds, to a brand new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Dave, here with my co-host and friend Chris, and we're ready to tackle another week of nerdiness. In today's episode, we'll be talking video games. But before we dive in, let's get into some news. Chris, what you got? Man, one of my all-time favorites is becoming a villain. Lucy Liu has joined the cast of Shazam! Fury of the Gods as the villainous Calypso a second daughter of Atlas and sister to Hespera, who's going to be played by Helen Mirren. Uh, I I love just about everything of the first Shazam film. I thought it was, I thought it was so pure. I thought it had so much heart is so inspirational. I thought talked about the beauty of family and coming together. Uh, Stands is one of my favorite DCEU films right up there with Aquaman. Uh, And I'm super, super excited to see this. I think Lucy Liu is probably one of the most talented people that I've seen in film. Uh, She was the bright spot of those Charlie's Angels films. She was uh, fantastic um, in in Elementary, which which is a a retelling of the the Sherlock Holmes story uh, where she plays like the gender bent role of of Watson. Super, super cool and innovative. She's also in this great uh, show that's a Paramount Plus original called Why Women Kill like a dark comedy and she she you know she has uh you know a dark tinge to her character there so kind of getting some previews of what it would be like to play villain before she goes full-on villain here so uh shazam fury of the gods is set to be released on june 2nd 2023 and i couldn't be more excited for this flick man and i can't blame you you know this is great casting uh shazam was a shockingly good movie that really took me by surprise uh, I'm genuinely excited for the sequel. The cast is shaping up great too. You know, I remember first encountering Lucy Liu on, of all things, a television series called Ally McBeal, where she was absolutely hilarious. She's such a talented actress. I can't recall ever watching a movie or TV show that featured her where she did not shine. Securing so this kind of talent bodes really well for the Shazam sequel. Here's hoping the script is strong too, and we could be in for another treat. Absolutely. Now, Dave, uh, I recently bought a Nintendo Switch on your recommendation, and I couldn't be happier with it, but we're getting more good news for Switch owners. What's going on? Yeah, so last Wednesday, Nintendo held one of its famous Indie World presentations, in which they discussed upcoming releases to its Switch console from independent developers. So these are not first-party titles. There's a lot to like here. Three games were immediately available on Switch after the presentation, so you can download these right now. That is Fez, an older platform puzzler that still totally holds up, a point-and-click adventure game, The Longing, and a comedy adventure game called There Is No Game, Wrong Dimension. 
The presentation also delved deeper into upcoming releases, several of which looked exciting. Now, the list is long. They had a really good sizzle reel uh, included in the presentation as well. So this is not comprehensive, but here are a few things that jumped out at me that I might be picking up. There's Chris Tales from Dreams Uncorporated. This is a JRPG that will be coming to the Switch on July 20th. The art style here is very impressive, really gorgeous. And I've been a fan of JRPGs for a long time, so this might scratch that itch. There's also a, uh, a game called Aztec, with tech being T-E-C-H, as in technology, Forgotten Gods. This is an action-adventure game inspired by Aztec mythology. It looks really interesting, and it's set to release in the fall. Uh, and then one that just made my horror movie loving heart flutter there is a remake of the House of the Dead video game, and I can't wait to see this. The House of the Dead games were always a lot of fun, kind of light gun games, you know, aim at the screen and fire and take out some zombies. The re-release of parts two and three on Wii worked really great with that hardware. You know, you could use the um, Wii mode sort of as like a zapper and, and aim directly at the screen, and it worked surprisingly well. So I'm hoping this might be able to recapture some of that magic on Switch. There was a lot more stuff announced, and it makes me extremely excited to be a Switch owner. Obviously, Nintendo fans generally come to the, the platforms that they release for first-party titles. But with Switch making so many great games portable, I'm really excited to see some of these games portably. Even something older like Fez, it kind of breathes new life into those kinds of games when you can literally take them with you anywhere. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, man, it, it's uh, it's funny. One of the GameStop guys uh, that helped me out a lot when I got my Switch, he said, um, I was like, do these games ever go on discount? I'm accustomed to you know playing Microsoft games where they'll offer discounts every once in a while to get you to buy in. And he was like, you know, basically Nintendo is like the Apple of gaming. And that made so much sense. Their first party games pretty much stay at that AAA rate of, you know, 50 bucks. Every once in a while they'll go down, but... Um, you know, with this news, I mean, House of the Dead, I know that I was a big scaredy cat before October, but House of the Dead was one of those go to arcade games with those. I remember those bright blue and orange guns and it was just so much fun. And then I think I even had it on Dreamcast. Um, so I, I love, love that game. And there's also been a lot of rumblings and I almost chose this as my news story. A lot of rumblings of like a joint venture with Microsoft. And like the whole Game Pass initiative, uh, and there's been some rumblings that have are, are lending credence to that. Um, I know that we've we've talked about that a little bit, but it's a great great investment uh, to have a Nintendo Switch. I even went and got a, a Switch Lite for the kids, y'all. I'm, I'm so happy with it. But it's a great time to be uh, a Nintendo fan right now. Absolutely, and, and wonderful things on the horizon as we speak. All right. That's it for Nerd News. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, it's time for the Byword Big Talk. What are the games that made us gamers? What made those games so special? Stick around to find out. Welcome back, nerds. In today's Byword Big Talk, Chris and I will be diving into the world of video games. Both of us are big fans of gaming, but why? What are the games that hooked us, that molded us into the gamers we are today? Chris, let's start with you. What is one seminal game from your past? 
All right, so let's let's go with where it all started. And I hinted this almost a year ago in my nerd origin story. Um, but the first seminal game that really pointed me on the path of being a hardcore gamer was Super Mario World for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, Super Nintendo was my first um, platform that I ever owned. Uh, I was born in 88, um, so it was right around that time, shortly thereafter, that the SNES was released. Uh, Super Mario World was released in 1990, and I want to say that I was about four, so I feel like it was like 92 that I got my Super Nintendo. And this was the first game that I really remember playing as, as like a four-year-old kid. And my mom still loves to give me a hard time about how I would sit and cry because I couldn't figure out the jump mechanics. And I, I very, you know, very much remember one of my first hardcore memories being that level where those big bombs are coming at you and you have oh, yeah. to get into that divot and duck under. And that was the one that I really struggled with. And so much so that it still traumatically just jumps up at me every once in a while. Um, but it really just set forth like this determination to get past that. Um, you know, with a lot of health conditions that I have, I have, um, I have mild case of epilepsy and I also have, um, uh, slight cerebral palsy. So when it comes to gaming, I really have to be like a dedicated type of, of person to, to master games. Um, my, my motor skills were delayed as a kid. Um, and, and so instead of just getting like knocked down and just giving up, it was really one of those things that I really just was determined to conquer. Um, I wasn't able to ride a bike until I was seven, but, but video games were one of those first things where I got knocked down and I just kept getting back up. And, and even to this day as, as a 32 year old man, I still struggle with like reaction time type games, like the type of trials that, uh, we've talked about in, in the legend of Zelda breath of the wild and Immortals Phoenix Rising, those types of trials, um, it, it takes me a while to kind of get the hang of that level. And it takes me several attempts just to get my reaction time going. So it's, it's something that I continue to battle uh, to this day. But Super Mario World was the first one that set me on that path. And, um, and really kind of what has kind of centered me as a Nintendo fan. I always find myself, I know I recently just got a switch, but I always find myself back at a Nintendo console. Uh, they always bring me back the, the super Mario games. They're always fantastic. I love the one on Wii. I love the ones that are on the switch, both, uh, the, the standard super Mario brothers. And I also just got the new 3d one, which is a nerd commendation coming up, but it's super fantastic and, and it's super amazing. But yeah, super Mario world was my first video game. And the one that really set me on this path. Yeah. And, and what a way to start your, uh, gaming career, so to speak, uh, with the super Nintendo entertainment system, the SNES was such a very special console. I think there's plenty of people that argue, uh, I, I may be among them that this, that's still the greatest console ever made, uh, pound for pound. This sucker was just filled with great games and super Mario world was definitely one of them. I mentioned many times how much I love the Mario series. I played the daylights out of Super Mario World. Um, I will argue, because I'm a turd, that uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 on the uh, original Nintendo Entertainment System is still the pinnacle of the series. But, man, I can see why this game is something that keeps bringing you back. World was just fantastic. The music, the introduction of Yoshi and Dinosaur Island to the whole mythos of Mario, and then the pitch-perfect physics on Mario's cape, 
you know, geez, now as I'm talking about it, I really want to play this one again. <laughs> I cannot blame you for loving this game, man. It is so good. Hey, Switch Online. Switch Online, man. I'm revisiting it regularly. Um, but yeah, I, I would totally agree about Super Mario Brothers 3. Uh, I, I went to my cousin's house and figured it out that there was something more before the super mario world i was like you know like the the type of 100 percenter nerds that we are like a deep dive so i was like oh my god there's more so i i totally agree i love number three i, I love that one the raccoon power up oh man the desert levels particularly were a favorite I, I absolutely love it and and i will totally echo what you say about the snes i'm not only i'm biased because it was my first unit and I have so many fond memories. But there are so many games that I could have put on this list for the Super Nintendo. Street Fighter 2, Street Fighter 2 Turbo. I mean, the Aladdin and Lion King games, even though they made me cry because they were so doggone difficult for a small child to be playing. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I, I love everything about the Super Nintendo. And and when I found out that you could play them on the Switch, uh, it was it was just pitch perfect for me. And I, I just hope that they continue to add games to that catalog because... It's, it's super exciting to revisit that. All right, Dave, what is your first seminal video game? Now, I have to preface this by saying that I've been a gamer since age six, and I am a hair older than you. I've played a lot of video games, and many of them captured my imagination and kept me glued to a controller. Selecting three games for today's episode was extremely tough. Remember, I, I talked extensively, even in our very first episode for our Nerd Origin story, about you know the Nintendo Game Boy and, and Super Mario Land, my very first Mario game. So my goal here was to select three games that marked kind of real turning points in my gaming life. There's so many I could talk about here, you know, Super Mario Land, uh, Kirby's Adventure, the Capcom Disney classics, anything Zelda. Picking was hard. So I kind of narrowed it down. And the very first one I really need to talk about here is Final Fantasy Adventure on the Nintendo Game Boy. Now, as I've mentioned on the byword before, my first real love in video gaming was Nintendo's Game Boy. I very purposefully picked that as a, a console I wanted to own even above the Nintendo Entertainment System because I loved portability so much, the idea that I can take my games anywhere. So I had played some Atari 2600 games. Uh, my father owned one of those and we had a bunch of games that, you know, we had gotten out of pawn shops and stuff. But it was really the Game Boy that first captured my imagination as a gamer. And between Tetris and Super Mario Land, I was hooked pretty quickly. But the game on the Game Boy that really helped turn me into a rabid gamer was Final Fantasy Adventure. The game is not actually part of the Final Fantasy series. Uh, this is a, a name change that they did in uh, the U.S., hoping to boost up sales of the game by associating it with Final Fantasy, which had recently become a pretty big success. Heck, in Europe, it was actually called Mystic Quest. That is how I knew the game uh, growing up. To make things even more confusing, by the way, there's actually a Final Fantasy game called Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. It's not, it's not that one either. Uh, <laughs> the naming conventions of some of these games in the early days of gaming were pretty confusing. So discussing this game with anybody is a serious challenge. So Final Fantasy Adventure on the Nintendo Game Boy is actually the first game in the Seiken Densetsu series, which also includes Secret of Mana on the SNES, and the not until recently released in the West Trials of Mana on the SNES. 
the game was released in, by Square in 1991. Picture a game in the vein of The Legend of Zelda. Overhead view, fantasy setting, epic quest, fairly similar battle system. However, there were major differences too. The game featured an RPG-style leveling up system where experience points could be used to bolster attack, defense, or magic ability. Uh, Most items in the game, not the weapons, but items, broke after multiple uses. So stuff like keys, metocs, and other um, items that you needed as supplies when you got into dungeons, you had to carefully manage those. There was also a huge variety of different weapons, which was a lot of fun uh, at the time. Uh, Zelda kind of focused on like you had the sword, you had the you know the bow and arrow, um, but here you you had this vast array of you know different whips and and morning stars and different swords of different power and ability. So the variety of the weapons and and how you could tweak your gameplay was pretty mind blowing on for a Game Boy game. The story focused on a stereotypical villain called Dark Lord. Uh huh who after, is after a young girl because she holds the key to reaching the Mana Tree, a great source of power. And, you know, I know by modern standards this game is simple. The graphics appear primitive with its four shades of gray. I mean, it was designed for the Game Boy for crying out, crying out loud. But my God, this, did this thing capture my imagination as a child. I actually played this one before ever playing a Zelda game. So to this day, this is the game against which I measure all action-adventure games. The notion that this is what video games could be. Not just simple puzzlers like Tetris or mazes like Pac-Man or, you know, moving from left side of the screen to the right side of the screen like a Mario game, but an honest-to-goodness epic quest with an involving story where characters died and there were real stakes. That was mind-blowing. The real star of the show, for me, though, is the music. Kenji Ito, who composed the music, turned in one of the most beautiful soundtracks I've ever heard come from a Game Boy. The music still gets me every time I hear it. That gorgeous opening melody, the rocking overworld adventure theme that gets you pumped for for fights with, you know, the creatures that are in the overworld, the creepy dungeon theme. Man, Chris, I love this game to this day. I don't care how old it is. It's awesome. <laughs> what what I love about talking to you about video games is is as a fellow historian you really dive into that historic historical aspect like it it totally tracks that you're a history teacher you're a historian and then you just flip the switch into gamer and it's just the same type of discourse and that's what i just absolutely love about talking games with you uh as far as final fantasy goes like it's it's always been one of those things that's on the periphery of my interest but i've never quite uh dove into it um one of my all-time favorite comic artists jen bartell who creates some of the most beautiful art that i've ever seen is 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 really into the series and and like if nothing else her art of final fantasy makes me want to dive in so i've got to find an entry point for this um i'm always jealous of people who had game boys because i didn't get one until the game boy color and then for one reason or another the only game that i had i think was like pokemon pinball which you know that was during the pokemon craze of the late 90s and early 2000s um and so like everybody was playing all these cool pokemon games where they caught all of their own and and all of the things that i wanted to do with pokemon and i was just playing pinball so um (laughs) 
so I never really had a huge experience with the the handheld games um, until the Switch, you know. So here recently, I'm in, in my 30s, finally getting that handheld experience. And, you know, I'll just be a broken record. I, I love the fact that the Switch has that duality, that there's certain games and there's certain aspects, certain levels that you want to play on the television, you know, Breath of the Wild being one of them. Uh, the Super Mario 3D, the newest one, is one that you want to play on the television. It's quite difficult to play handheld, that 3D aspect. But then that portability is just so awesome. Like if I have to go somewhere, if I have to go sit through uh, another boring family engagement, I hope my family doesn't listen to this. They're going to be. <laughs> but <laughs> it, like if I have to go do that, I'll just bring the switch with me. And whether or not it's connected to Wi-Fi, it's cool. I could just keep going where I left off and I could just literally just pull it out of the dock. I, I just love that. So it's everything I always wanted to. And I was like looking with, with complete envy at my friends who had portable handheld devices. And I finally get to live that out. Thanks to the switch. But, but final fantasy is one of the things that I, I always wanted to look into. And you know, when it comes to the traditional Final Fantasy series, we can definitely have a conversation about that sometime. I certainly have some recommendations of where are the best places to start. However, Chris, let's go ahead and change gears and get to your second seminal video game. Man, it would not be a true uh, dive into who I am as a fan without an X-Men video game. Um X-Men Legends, man, it really it really just rekindled that love for me. Uh, X-Men Legends was released in 2004 to several different consoles, and I played it on different consoles. I played it both on the GameCube and on the original Xbox. Um, and it was really the precursor to these four characters at a time, you know, superhero, you know, action games where you could pivot back and forth between the four different characters. And it really kind of paved the way for things like Marvel ultimate Alliance. Uh, and it was just really, really fun. And it really rekindled that love that I had for the X-Men uh, based on the original animated series from the nineties. Um, and, you know, looking back now, um, you know, they, they were, this was like the high time of like the ultimate universe. So uh, in the first game, a lot of the uniforms were were based on the Ultimate Universe comics. Um, so it was intriguing. Also, you know, with the cinematic universe, the X-Men films, which are absolute trash. But, um, you know, there's a lot of tie-ins with those. But it really kind of rekindled that love for superheroes. And it really started making me seek out nerd media and culture again. And I kind of gone through a dry spell as far as superheroes and stuff. And and X-Men Legends, the first one uh, in, in 04, was really one of the things that got me back into superheroes. Um, and then the second one, so I, I'm kind of cheating here, but X-Men Legends 1 and 2, uh, number 2 was released in September 2005 for the GameCube and the original Xbox. That was the one that really did it for me. I've always been a huge, massive fan of Magneto. I think he's a much more compelling character than Charles Xavier. I think he's much more interesting and I'm like, but why does he have to be a villain? He should be a good guy. And so that's why I love X2, um, you know, uh, the film, because they team up. I love stories where they team up with Magneto and he's on the on the side of the good guys. And that's exactly what happens in the, in the sequel. After Magneto being the, the primary villain in the, the first X-Men Legends game with the uh, Asteroid M, um, 
In the second one, it's the rise of Apocalypse. And Apocalypse is this overarching villain that is so powerful. He's uh, he's this big antagonist. And he's so overpowered that it takes the Brotherhood of Mutants, led by Magneto, joining forces with the X-Men, coming together. Uh, and, and it's just awesome because you get to play all those characters that you were having to fight against in the first one. But like I said, these these two games, you know, just rekindled my love for, for superheroes and the X-Men and, and just really set me on the path towards getting into reading actual comic books. You know, as I've talked about before, I was a latecomer to reading actual comic books. But this is one of those first stepping stones to getting me to where I'm, you know, ravenously just devouring comic books. So X-Men Legends 1 and 2 on on the original Xbox and GameCube were uh, and kind of like what you were saying, when we have so many video games, we've been playing video games for the better part of, you know, three decades now. Like, which ones do you pick? There's so many. So I, I, I kind of went over to the same format, like which ones really were like a, a seminal moment in my life and had a real kind of game changing pun intended, you know, effect on where i was gonna go both as you know individual in my personal life and then as a gamer and this would be an incomplete episode without x-men legends one and two how did i know you were going to find a way to bring the x-men into this one (laughs) (laughs) honestly i feel kind of bad to say i've never played these games i remember seeing them on the shelf but at the time they released i was already beginning to drift away from gaming and I'll, i'll talk a little bit more about what happened there later but I remember the game that saw the most play for me on the GameCube was actually Resident Evil 4, followed closely by The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker. But otherwise, I didn't play a whole lot for a while. Now, I've since gone back and caught up on some stuff I missed, particularly on the GameCube, which I think is a really underrated system. But I've not gotten to the X-Men Legends games. I might need to remedy the, remedy this, Chris. Yeah, I, I highly recommend them. And also, while we're here... I'm 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 cheating today. This is my cheat day. Um, I also loved the Marvel Ultimate Alliance one and two. Can we talk about why in the world Marvel Ultimate Alliance three? One of the primary reasons I bought a Switch, if we're being honest, is so doggone difficult. I cannot get past like a single level in in the third Ultimate Alliance. It's way too, and I have it on the easiest difficulty. I don't know what in the world is going on. Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 is a super letdown for me. I, I couldn't. I was like, man, this is going to be a nerd commendation in the bag. I can't recommend this game. It's way too difficult. It's funny you say that. I uh, A few months ago, I kind of wrote a rather lengthy piece um, that I believe ended up on um, the Nerd Daily about uh, video game difficulty and how it's kind of become sort of a, a gatekeeper for a lot of people who would be really into games, except for this culture of it needs to be harder, it needs to be tougher, there doesn't need to be difficulty settings and all that. So I'm really disappointed to hear that uh, Ultimate Alliance 3 is uh, so tough because, well, it would be a game that I probably would enjoy too. I just don't, you know, as, as a busy adult, I don't have the time to... Uh, invest into what the the young kids call getting good (laughs) well and 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 as i referenced previously with with my cerebral palsy uh i it takes me a second in my reaction time so i usually play not necessarily on the easiest one because i don't want it to be completely breeze but i usually play on the next one up like a normal difficulty or like a pro difficulty um so like a medium because i want to challenge myself 
and get actually better. But this one is I'm set. I have it on the easiest difficulty and it's really, really frustrating. And as a Marvel fanboy, it, it's, it breaks my heart, honestly. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, Dave, what is the second game? Another one that I've never heard of. Oh, yeah. So let's get complicated again for a second. Prepare for my historical thesis. <laughs> so remember that Seiken Densetsu series I talked about earlier, Final Fantasy Adventures, technically the first entry. There is a second entry, and I've got a confession to make. The Super NES sequel to Final Fantasy Adventure called Secret of Mana actually left me quite cold back in the day. I know, I know. For those of you listening that are fans, listen, understand where you're coming from. It's one of the most gorgeous and beloved games on the SNES, and I played it plenty when I was a kid, but I never completed it. Something about it didn't sing to me back in the day, but a spin-off of sorts did. So the third game in the series never came to North America and Europe at the time. It actually was recently released under the name Trials of Mana. But at the time, instead, Square designers in the U.S. decided to make their own game using the gameplay and engine of the SNES Saiken Densetsu games. The result was called Secret of Evermore. It was released in 1995. And to me, I have to say, this sang in all the right ways. It is one of the most fun, out there, and goofy games I've ever played. So the action-adventure gameplay of the Seiken Densetsu series is here, including its, at the time, innovative ring menus, the graphics were SNES perfection, but really, it was the story and the tone of the game that finally hooked me. So the game features a, a boy protagonist and his dog that are sucked into a strange world called Evermore. This uh, world is divided into different regions that roughly correspond with eras in human history. So there's a prehistoric region. There's a region that is reminiscent of ancient Greece. Uh, there's sort of a Renaissance region and so on and so forth. In this world of Evermore, uh, the boy and his dog get up to all sorts of shenanigans trying to find their way back home. And the game is simply put hilarious or maybe it just hit me just right when i was a kid i don't know but the writing to me was so sharp uh, it really resonated with me the main character for example is obsessed with b movies and is constantly referencing movies that actually don't exist in real life and that constant blathering commentary oh this reminds me of this strange movie feels almost like something from mystery science theater 3000 the humor is so bizarre and at the same time, lands so perfectly. There is a scene early in the game where your dog, every time you visit a different um, region, transforms into a different dog. He looks different based on which region you're in. And one of the other character characters asks you, well, what's your dog's name? And at that point, a screen pops up and you have the opportunity to name your dog. And I had fun just making a save file just for that spot and going back over and over to, to it and just entering weird names for my dog. Because no matter what you enter, the response of the character you're talking to is, well, that was my mother's name or that was my grandmother's <laughs> name or something like that. So I would go in that and be like, I put in there something like, butt biter. And the character's like, butt biter? That was my grandma's name. And I'm like, this is awesome. This is awesome. The game also had a really cool substitute for a magic system, namely alchemy. Uh, you gather ingredients uh, out in the world for spells, and that was a lot of fun, you know, mixing these different ingredients, learning new spells. 
There was also a leveling up system, much like in the uh, Seiken Densetsu games. You could level up your characters, you could level up your weapons, you could even level up your spells. The more you use them, the more powerful they would get. Uh, most fans of the Seiken Densetsu series treat this game like some weird cousin. Now, let me tell you, I love the whole series, but I also love hanging out with this weird cousin. He's a lot of fun, Chris. <laughs> I, let me tell you, man, I love um, I love games where you can name animals slash characters when you have that ability. Like Breath of the Wild, I love naming those horses. I would have... Like I would, ha- I would take turns having my wife name them, um, or or the kids name them, and my five year old son named a horse Debbie for little Debbie, and I, I <laughs> laughed for thirty minutes straight. I just absolutely love that. Like I'm playing uh, Pokemon Sword right now, and I just have fun like creating the most ridiculous names, like standard names for for my pokemon like they have these like super complicated pokemon names they try to get crafty and i'm naming them like bill and linda and nancy (laughs) so it's just funny to me where um you know i go off and they say like score bunny is coming out and then like all of a sudden my character goes come on linda you got this (laughs) <laughs> don't, just, don't don't do Karen, Chris. Just don't do Karen. <laughs> no, that's the one I've avoided. But yeah, I love I love that. I love games where you have this trusty companion. Not a dog person. I'm a cat dad. Um I know I've I've rubbed some people wrong on social media, but but dogs just aren't my vibe. I like having some personal space and 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 in my experience when I've owned dogs or when my parents have owned dogs, dogs don't understand personal space. So I'm very much a cat dad. But um I still love games where you have that companion. Um uh, one of the things that I really, really liked about um that the recent star Wars game fallen order is where you have that droid that follows you around. And like, you have this companionship and where you kind of depend on each other. I love games like that, where it's like, it's just us against the world, man. And I, I, I love, 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 love games like that. Yeah. I, I, and I can't blame you. I do too. Uh, when you were mentioning the breath of the wild thing, my wife uh, takes huge pleasure in naming the horses in breath of the wild, <laughs> whether it's her safe file or mine. She's like, you know, just call that horse so-and-so uh so i i I totally feel you there my wife my wife named all the horses in red dead redemption so it was uh, i would text her she'd be at work in the middle of a 12-hour shift i was like no honey i got a new horse you have to name it (laughs) all right chris what is uh your next seminal video game oh man i had to save the best for last um it would not be me talking video games without Assassin's Creed. Um, and for me, the most important and my favorite of the franchise would be Assassin's Creed 2, uh, released in 2009. I, You know, we talked about like seminal moments in our life as both as human beings, as individuals and as a gamer. 2009, my first child was born in 2010. So this was like my last gasp in my 20s of you know playing video games without any like overwhelming responsibilities of being a father or being a grown-up really so um i i love this game so much and i recently bought it again as part of the Ezio pack 
Um, there's so much, so many things that I love about this game. The first one was good, and it was a nice starting point. Assassin's Creed One, they they laid the groundwork for this entire universe of Desmond Miles going back into his, you know, genetic, um, you know, ancestors and accessing their memories to bring to the present. Uh, you know, for uh, for kind of a, a level up on uh, these this ongoing assassins versus templars thing but assassins creed 2 i think is really where they hit their home run like they laid the groundwork in the first one but they really hit the ground running in the second one it introduced one of not one of my all-time favorite video game characters Ezio Auditore da Firenze Ezio is just everything that you want in a kick-ass like cool guy protagonist no matter if you're talking video games, if you're talking, you know, fiction novels, if you're talking film universe, Ezio is that quintessential debonair, swashbuckling cool guy. He's Han Solo. He's like a pirate. He's got that swagger. He's a bad boy with attitude He's just a super cool character. Uh, this game takes place in Renaissance Italy. The history nerd in me was automatically hooked. Renaissance Italy is one of my all-time favorite periods of history. You get to interact with Leonardo da Vinci for Pete's sake. Like, it doesn't get better than that. And like this intertwining historical fiction. Historical fiction is one of my favorite pieces of literature. I've talked about this Quite often, I love the Three Musketeers. I love historical fiction, like revisiting these periods of history uh, through a through a fictional lens and just playing with that. Like, there's so many endless possibilities. But like, as I said, this was like like my last ditch effort, um, you know, before I had all this responsibility. So it's like one of the final games before I took a se- severe hiatus from gaming for probably six to seven years um you know as a parent uh but but it also started like this com- this trilogy of games following the character of Ezio they knew what they had in this and they continued it with two subsequent sequels but just being able to walk around Renaissance Italy the the cobblestone streets interacting with with individuals from history like uh like da Vinci and Machiavelli like it's just super, super cool to see how they intertwine this storyline. So Assassin's Creed 2 is one of probably my all-time favorite video game. I played that on the three uh, on the 360. Also, the 360 is the first console that I bought with my own money. I got money for graduation, and that was I immediately spent that entire gift card at Walmart on buying a 360. So Assassin's Creed 2 is probably my all-time favorite video game. I've got this game on my shelf. And yet, I've never played it. And and there's a good reason for that. I can get into that in a moment. But, you know, trying to get caught up on the excellent games that uh, came out for the Xbox 360 may be my life's most futile mission. I've played a bit of the first Assassin's Creed, and then I sort of jumped ahead into the newer, more RPG-like releases, uh, like Odyssey and Origin. And I love those a lot. But I constantly want to go back to the stuff I missed, uh, so much like X-Men Legends 1 and 2, I hope my time is coming. 
Yeah, for sure. And and uh, if you haven't already, like the Ezio collection is what I got on on three sixty or, or no, excuse me, not on three sixty, but on the Microsoft Digital Store, and it has like the three games and his storyline, and and you watch him like age and grow older and become like this this seminal figure in the in the Brotherhood of Assassins, and and I totally recommend it. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. All right, Dave. I'm so geeked for your last selection. I love this game so much, and I can't wait to hear you wax poetic about it. Well, let's let's let the poetry commence. Chris, to my great shame, I too was a lapsed gamer for a while. I still gamed a bit through college. Uh, I owned a GameCube and a PS2, but real life increasingly encroached on my nerdy habits. Uh, I was pretty intense in college, pretty determined. I didn't spend a whole lot of time gaming or partying. I was very goal-oriented about my degree. And then, you know, coming out of college, going straight into the teaching profession, you know, getting your feet wet in that, I just ended up skipping a whole bunch of games, particularly the sort of PS3, Xbox 360 era. And then for one of my big birthdays, uh, I turned a big... Um, my parents <laughs> wanted to give me something special, so they decided to get me back into gaming, and they bought me an Xbox 360. It was uh, the most recent model. I think it's like the E model, the Slim Edition. Um, and this is, you know, the Xbox One was already on the horizon. It wasn't that far off, and yet, you know, here's the 360. And I had gone from gaming i've been gone from gaming long enough at that point that i wasn't even sure where to start to get back into gaming and and then i'm at batman rocksteady's arkham asylum may be the game that single-handedly brought me back to video games the game focused on batman who's trying to outsmart the joker after the villain takes control of arkham asylum and man this game just it, it 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 was everything I needed at the right moment in my life to get me back into gaming. The game is moody, it's atmospheric, it's almost a little claustrophobic. More importantly, it managed to perfectly capture the Batman experience. The combat is hard hitting, the stealth, which I generally dislike in a lot of video games felt fantastic here. Sneaking around and taking out henchmen from the shadows was absolutely awesome. Factor in a story written by animated series maestro Paul Dini and featuring the return of Mark Hamill as the Joker and Kevin Conroy as Batman from said animated series. And this was basically designed to specifically attack my gaming habits. Like, I adore Batman animated series so very much. And then you put this game in front of me, it was, it was my catnip, essentially. Do I like the later Arkham games? Sure. But I'm going to go ahead and have a hot take here and say this. Everybody hails Arkham City as some sort of masterpiece, and I will agree that it's a lot of fun. I also think it's incredibly bloated. The smaller, more atmospheric, more claustrophobic Arkham Asylum really holds the key to my heart. I, I to this day, believe that Asylum is the superior Arkham game. And so... Why do I game today? Because of Batman Arkham Asylum, Chris. I, I wholeheartedly agree with your, your hot take. Uh, I, I I thought City was nice and it was it was uh it was, it was an adequate sequel, but I and and Arkham Knight is okay, but it, it's just it's to quote my wife, it's doing too much. Um but but I th- I think the 
I think Asylum is is leaps and bounds above both of the other ones. And and you took all of the things I was going to talk about. Paul Denny, I mean, like Hamill and Conroy coming back, Arlene Sorkin coming back as Harley Quinn. Uh, it was it gave me the creeps this game, and you know, like it, it was so perfectly well developed and and the story was just flawless like it was seamless it had it it, it was like those comic arcs we've talked about like jason aaron's thor hickman's marvel run uh where it had a clear defined story to tell and it didn't have any fat on the bone like it was all meat it was everything was there for a purpose and it was not extemporaneous I, I i think this game is perfect and and like for for me it was a very similar experience i, I bought this game like when it came like the game of the year edition when it was down to like 20 bucks um it was one of the few games that i played um after after my daughter was born in 2010 um so it was it was very much in the my free time after she went to bed at night and so like it was a it was a really really special special game for me because it was one of the few things that I was playing throughout that um early parenthood uh hiatus I took from gaming. I I can't say enough about this game. I love it so much. Dude, it was literally the first game that I popped into my 360 when I got it. And I my birthday is fairly close to Christmas and and so it's kind of become a tradition for me around December that I make a concerted effort to sit down and play this game. And I've now played it so much that I usually can I can beat the game in one sitting. It's a marathon. It takes me a, a good chunk of the day, but I can go through the whole game in pretty much one sitting and beat it. And it just I never get tired of this game. It's just everything about it feels right. The controls, the story, the the, the writing, the voice performances. The, this sucker is the real deal. I, I don't think I'll ever get tired of it. All right. Well, that's it for our Byword Big Talk and some seminal video games in our gaming career. Uh, let's go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back, we have some new nerd commendations for you. Stick around. And here we are, the final segment of our show, Nerd Commendations. Chris, recommend me something. I need something new. What you got? <laughs> well man in these streaming wars we've talked about this pretty extensively it's hard to pick and choose if you cut the cord it's hard to pick and choose which streaming services you want to go ahead and bite the bullet for and subscribe to and for me one of the ones i continue to hang on to i keep coming back to i keep re-upping my subscription is paramount plus formerly uh cbs all access and that's exclusively for the star trek content um and and my latest deep dive binge that i'm currently going through is star trek discovery now star trek discovery has made a lot of waves with old gatekeeping you know fans who say this is not real trek but i would like to high five them in the face because this is some of the best star trek it's some of the best forward pushing which is ironic because it's like a prequel forward pushing forward momentum star trek sci-fi that i just absolutely love and if you've listened to any episode of this podcast you know that i am a sucker for acting performances and i can't think of a single 
series where I have seen pound for pound better acting performances. Star Trek Discovery is absolutely loaded with dynamite acting performances and look no further than the lead character, Michael Burnham played by Sonequa Martin green. Like she emotes so much and she brings so much emotion and power into her character that you cannot help, but be overcome with the resonance of the moment of what is happening in this. Um, It's very, very difficult to make prequel shows like this where you're going back and telling you know stories that that are kind of intertwined with with stories you've ever heard always already heard so revisiting the original series timeline you know is a tall order but with 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 Sinequa Martin Green here with Doug Jones as Lieutenant Saru Saru immediately became one of my all-time favorite Trek characters the complex nature of being a Kelpian, a species that is completely tied down by the aspect of fear. And then a minor spoiler evolving beyond that fear in season two and losing those fear ganglia was just like everything that he had lived previously had been a lie. It had been sold to him by this quote unquote dominant species on his planet. And he had lived in fear of a lie. And it's just this beautiful storytelling aspect. Um, This series also features one of my all time favorite relationships in a series. One of the most complex and yet so real relationships. And that is the relationship between Anthony Rapp's Paul Stamets and Nelson Cruz's Hugh, Dr. Hugh Culber. And it's what I love about their relationship is it's not the token LGBTQ homosexual relationship they're not just checking off boxes of an interracial relationship of of a gay relationship it's a real relationship that goes through these ebbs and flows these mountains and these valleys um i don't want to spoil a whole lot of it because it's it's one of my favorite aspects of this show but 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 the the valleys and mountains the adventure that their relationship goes through it completely resonated with me um mary wiseman plays uh cadet or excuse me ensign tilly who immediately her first scene on the show i was like she's gonna drive me knucking futs like i'm gonna hate this character (laughs) i she is gonna drive me crazy but then by you know i'm i'm you know in the second episode of season three so i still got a little bit of ways to go but like i absolutely adore her She's just that motor mouth nerd who loves what she does so much. She'll drive you crazy. But then like, she's also the heart of the show. Um, and then you have like these really awesome. It, it's really weird how they do the captaincy of discovery, because it feels like if you're a Harry Potter fan, it feels like that defense against the dark arts teacher curse. They only have a captain for a season. So like season one, they have, um, you know, a captain and then they go to season two, they have, you know, Christopher Pike come um, Anson Mount as Christopher Pike, like is just incredible. Um, Jason Isaacs in, in season one as the captain is, is perfect as well. So it's just really like, are you going to be able to sell me this with a different captain every season? And they absolutely do. Um, and I'm super excited to see what they do with strange new worlds um, with, with Pike and Spock uh, and number one coming on with Rebecca Romaine and Ethan Peck. 
It is really hard to revisit a character as seminal, as important to all of nerddom as Spock. But Ethan Peck, man, he brings it. And it's not Leonard Nimoy. Nobody's going to be Leonard Nimoy. But doggone it, between him and Zachary Quinto, I have all the respect in the world for tackling and having the courage to take on a character like that who is completely, you know... uh, you know, emblemized and and perfectly portrayed by Leonard Nimoy. So I love so much about this show. It's so much fun. Um, Holy crap. How did I even not get to this? Michelle Yeoh as Emperor Philippa Giorgio. Uh, I mean, I, I live in a world, I believe in a Philippa Giorgio supremacy. Like that's my world. Michelle Yeoh can do anything and I'll just watch it. She can literally be on the screen doing anything. She's such a bad in this show and she is absolutely perfect and by far my favorite character. So um, Shazad Latif as, as Ash Tyler brings a really complicated uh, arc and a really complex character. Um, I'm telling you this show, I love it so much and I'm in season three and, and can't wait for more. Ah, yeah. Discovery. Some love it, some hate it, huh? Has there ever been a more divisive Trek series? It's basically (laughs) become the equivalent of The Last Jedi in Star Wars. It's just divisive, which is so strange to me. Because I enjoy Discovery quite a bit, too. I mean, is it perfect? Well, no, nothing is. The show has done several things I would obviously have done differently as a long-time fan of Star Trek. The Klingon redesign in the first season was pretty significant, and it's just an odd choice for a a prequel series, something that's supposed to literally take place even before the original series. So, So odd choice there. But there's also so much cool stuff going on here. And I don't think I could uh, encapsulate all the stuff that you've already mentioned. But, you know, I particularly love the introduction of Captain Pike in the second season. Anson Mount's portrayal, as you mentioned, is amazing. And it gives me a lot of hope for the spin-off Strange New Worlds. There's much to like on Discovery. It's different than some of the previous Star Trek, for sure. But just to be that guy for a second, so was Deep Space Nine when it first released. And it turned out eventually to grow into what was my all-time favorite Star Trek show. So an open mind and a willingness to let a franchise try new things and evolve is, I think, super important. So yeah, Discovery is good stuff by me, particularly Season 2. I've not watched Season 3 yet. Season 1 was a little hit or miss, but Season 2 was my sweet spot. I really, really loved Season 2. I think it fired really on all cylinders there, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing I, f- I forgot to mention was the production quality on this film. It's visually just arresting. Like it, every episode looks like a, um, a summer blockbuster type like sci-fi film. Like it's it's so beautiful to watch. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. I felt like season one, they were finding themselves as far as the Klingons go. Uh, you know, it's it's a fictional universe. I'll say, you know. On, on a planet, let's say planet Earth, we have different races, we have different speed, you know, we have different, you know, types of individuals. So I, I can, you know, reason that away as they're a different sect of Klingons. And they look different. But um, as far as, as so I feel like season one, they were finding their footing, but season two, they really hit their stride. And I really think that they, they had all found their character work. And then you bring in Anson Mount, who I had in my reservations about with the short lived Inhuman series. Uh, you know, he played Black Bolt, but he came in and he was a tour de force. And 
and I couldn't be more geeked uh, about, you know, Strange New Worlds and, and, and that crew that I love so much. Yeah, I, I'm very excited for that one as well. I have high hopes for Strange New Worlds. All right, Dave, you are really trying to get me to go into the horror genre more and more. What do you have for me this week? Yeah, you know, there was a great little horror gem of a game on the PlayStation 4 called Until Dawn. It was basically a video game tribute to the slasher movies of the 80s, and it was a lot of fun. And I'm glad to say that Supermassive, the developer of that game, they're still in the business of making horror games with a series of games that they are calling the Dark Pictures Anthology. And I've played the first game in the series, Man of Medan, and I liked it a great deal. Uh, The game's description is simple. Five friends set sail on a holiday diving trip that soon changes into something much more sinister. Embark on a horrific journey aboard a ghost ship. All playable characters can live or die. The choices you make will decide their fate. Who will you save? You know, the wonderful thing about the game is that in addition to being absolutely gorgeous to look at, is that it also has a bit of that telltale style storytelling where choices you make in-game change the trajectory of the story. You know, I love these kinds of games and I've already waxed poetic on the byword before about, you know, The First Life is Strange, which uh, was really one of my favorite games as far as how they executed that sort of storytelling. The other thing to mention here is that this is a budget title game. So it's usually uh, they release the Dark Pictures Anthology games below the usual $60 threshold. I want to say they come out usually at $39.99. But in exchange, they're, they're shorter games as well. They still feel plenty AAA, but I know Man of Medan in particular could be completed, I think, in around six hours. So it's a shorter experience, which in some cases to me is actually a good thing. Not every game that you play needs to be, you know, Breath of the Wild. Uh, I, I sank like 200 hours into that game just because I wanted to do everything in the game you could possibly do. The horror elements work really, really well in this game. Uh, I'm a big fan of the horror genre, as uh, listeners have learned by now. So I'd recommend playing this one with the lights off or down low. Basically, if you're a fan of horror, if you're a fan of video games, or if you're a fan of wide-open storytelling where your choices matter, this is the kind of game for you. Oh god, you hooked me because I was about to—I was about to say Telltale, and 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 I absolutely love that. I st- like I, like I've said, I'm still coming around when it comes to horror, and I'm, I'm being—I'm I'm really proud of myself how adventurous I'm being, you know, with my choices. Yeah. But um, I, lo- I I absolutely freaking love games where your choices matter it gives this so much like much more investment in a game it's not this pre-coded predetermined storyline even though i love games like that it's like i have i feel i feel like i have so much agency in these games so like the batman telltale games guardians of the galaxy one is super fun it feels like i feel so much more uh involved part of the process so i'm definitely checking this bad boy out Well, there you have it. That's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoy our show, please be sure to give us a rating and review on your favorite podcasting platform. We're available wherever podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, as well as Amazon Music and Audible. You can also check us out on our fancy website, nerdbyword.com. 
Be also, uh, also be sure to engage with us on social media. You can find our show pages on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord, and you can find us individually to poke fun at us or talk comics or video games with us at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris, respectively. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>